0: Welcome to another episode of Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. I'm Jack Llewellyn, your host, and we're coming to you a day later than normal. I usually record on Sunday afternoons, but yesterday I went to my daughter's piano recital, so we're a day late uh, for people who have listened along, the last two episodes we had Jaime Kirkendall on. And I want to thank him for coming on. I think it was incredibly informative, and I encourage anybody who didn't listen to those uh, to go back and do so if you have any interest in the real facts of this case. Today we're going to talk about justice. And we're going to look at several different scenarios and and groups of people that are involved in one way, shape, or form in the Camarena case. And we're going to ask the question: whether justice has been served, whether justice has been delayed, or justice has been denied. And I'm not going to give you what necessarily what I think the answers are, though it'll probably become clear. But I think these are things that we really want to start asking ourselves as we look at our justice system, as we look at this case in particular, as we look at some current events, and I think at the end we can ask a couple of questions about justice for Agent Camarena and whether that's been achieved and if not, why, and maybe we will end up with a few answers. So with that, the first group of folks I want to talk about, um, for this conversation on justice is kind of the big three narco traffickers. Um, you know, the people who are alleged to have been the founders of the Guadalajara narcotics cartel, though, as agent Kirkendall recounted to us in, in both of, of his interviews, uh, You know, there really was nothing called the Guadalajara Cartel until after Agent Camarena was abducted. Um, And it was really more of a creation of the media than anything else at that time. Agent Kirkendall also told us last week that at the time of the kidnapping, there were lots of drug traffickers in Guadalajara. These three were kind of the ones that were known But again, keep in mind, at that time, they didn't even have a picture of Caro Quintero. None. Zero. And I spoke this last week with a former DEA agent uh, who was present at the Guadalajara airport. And he recounts in in great detail to me, and hopefully he will be on uh, at some point, um, but we had a great discussion about the the airport, um, you know, the standoff. He kind of tells a, a, a different story, uh, at least at the margins, than has been portrayed in uh, movies and discussed by um, other former DEA agents who actually weren't there. But the one thing that becomes very clear is that they did not know it was Carlo Quintero on the plane. Uh, they suspected that it was a trafficker simply because of the dress and the people who were with them and the cars they arrived in. Uh, but it wasn't until later when they were faxed a copy of a photograph of Carlo Quintero that they knew who he was. So, Again, we're going to talk about the big three, but I never, ever want to give the impression that there weren't others. There weren't other people involved to uh, one extent or another. And even within what we call the Guadalajara cartel, you know, there were other people, Javier Barbara Hernandez, Cochiloco. Uh, there were others who had some significant role in things. But again, for our purposes, we're going to talk about the uh, the big three. And I want to talk about, kind of after the fact, what happened to these folks. So let's, let's say that we assume for the sake of, of this discussion that all three had some role in the abduction of Agent Camarena, his interrogation, and his eventual murder. We can start with Ernesto Fonseca. Uh, Fonseca was arrested in Puerto Varda, on April 7, 1985, and he was sentenced to 40 years in prison. He initially went to some low-security prisons, later was moved to more of a uh, high-security prison, but he was given house arrest in July of 2016, ostensibly because of bad health. Um and and obviously he is uh getting up there in years, but he's still alive, he's still living at uh his home. Uh the pictures that you see of the home and of him occasionally. I, I can think of a couple that have come out in the not too distant past, show a fairly nice residence. Uh, you know, certainly not pauper by any standards. And again, he's he's there with his family. Uh, ...and continues to live his life. Juxtapose that, if you will, with Miguel Felix. So as we know, after the Camarena murder, uh, Felix kind of kept a low profile. Still was running the, the cartel, if we want to call it that, but still had his own role in trafficking. But he really kept a pretty low profile. He was arrested on April 8th of 1989, so almost four years to the day from the time that Fonseca was arrested. Uh, He, too, initially went to a minimum security prison where he was really able to kind of continue to uh, regulate the, the drug trafficking in Mexico. He was later transferred to a high security prison. That was in about 1993. He's alleged, of course, that uh, his treatment, especially at the high-security prisons, was uh, rough and difficult and and torturous and and that his medical issues weren't attended to. Interestingly, um, Miguel Felix was initially sentenced to 40 years. You're going to hear 40 years a lot. The reason for that is uh, even if they had longer sentences— At the time, Mexican law was you could only be sentenced to 40 years. That was your maximum. Uh, So again, Miguel Felix sentenced to 40 years. But in 2017, he was retried, given an additional 37 years. Uh, He's made repeated requests. The last one I'm aware of in court was in 2019. uh, But repeated requests to get home arrest, kind of like Fonseca and again he alleges that his health is in serious decline last year he gave an interview which might be the only um you know real interview that he's given uh, since his incarceration but he gave a, a, an interview uh that was broadcast on TV in in Mexico you can watch it on uh, on YouTube it was it, if the intent was to gain sympathy for uh, his situation, for his health and to be able to get to uh, that home arrest certainly didn't go well. Uh, it was not a good interview in my mind. He comes across as as bitter, uh, unrealistic and he continues to you know make claims like he didn't really know uh, Caro or Fonseca things that just nobody is going to believe. So we've looked at at Fonseca and Felix. Fonseca gets his 40 years, hasn't served all of it, um, but he's given house arrest. Miguel Felix stays out of prison for four years after Fonseca's arrest, but he gets 40 years and then another 37, and he's still sitting in jail. And then we have Caro Quintero. Caro was arrested in Costa Rica on April 4th, 1985. Apparently, April is a month to arrest Guadalajara cartel members. Uh, But he was in Costa Rica, arrested, brought back and tried and was sentenced to 40 years in prison. He kind of has the same minimal security prison to a high security prison. But the key with, with Rafa is on August 9th, 2013, sometime right about 12.01 a.m., so right after midnight, uh, he was released. So a state judge and magistrate had made a motion to the Jalisco court, that, and, and this motion was granted, that said that Caro had been improperly tried in a federal courtroom, for crimes that should have been treated at a state level. Uh, and so because of that, he was found uh, guilty, or he was convicted for murder, which is a state crime, not for drug trafficking, which is a federal crime. Because of that, the Jalisco State Court said for those ones that he, you know, those crimes that he properly could have been tried for in that jurisdiction or in that forum, he'd already served his time and he was released. So that was coming up on nine years ago, and he's still out, uh, still a fugitive, a fugitive from justice, both in Mexico and the United States. The DEA continues to search for him. He's on the most wanted list. The DEA continues Operation landa at least in part, in case uh, Caro is uh, arrested and extradited and can be tried in the United States. But since he's been out, uh, a couple of things have happened. Uh, you know, and and keep in mind, some of this is. Uh, it's hard to know exactly, but the consensus seems to be that after he got out, he uh, and his brothers uh, made an effort to, or were asked, depending on how you want to look at it, uh, to regain some control over the Sinaloa cartel. He had more of an alliance with uh, El Mayo than uh, with El Chapo, who you know, ostensibly those two were controlling the Sinaloa cartel. After um, El Chapo was arrested, there became some type of a, of of a inner struggle between Los Chapitos and uh, the the Carl, Carl brothers or the Quintero brothers. Excuse me, you know, Rafa and his brother. And you end up with a situation where now there's factions within the Sinaloa cartel, and Rafa then goes and either founds or reinstitutes, institutes however you want to look at it, the Caborka cartel, headquartered out of Caborka, Cor- right near his hometown, and they are about battling and continued to battle. Uh, Los Salazar, which is the military element of the Sinaloa cartel, for control. Um, Interestingly, (laughs) you know, Caro's wanted in in the United States. He's wanted in Mexico. He's given at least two interviews uh, to reporters. And yet, he's not in jail on either side of the border which raises some questions, why hasn't he been found? I would argue that the primary reason is there's nobody who has a political motive to do that. Uh, Certainly not in Mexico, perhaps not even in in the United States, though clearly, I want to make this very, very clear, clearly there are uh, many, many in the DEA who would love and welcome the opportunity to arrest and extradite Caracintero. So don't don't misunderstand that by by any stretch. I I sometimes like to uh make the comparison between Rafa now and El Chapo. El Chapo is in jail in Supermax, not far down the road from where I'm broadcasting from. Um But El Chapo, you know, was kind of thumbing his nose at the Mexican government, at least in some respects. You know, he had, uh, he'd escaped from prison. He was seen in Los Mochis. For God's sakes, he did an interview with Sean Penn. He was reaching out to beauty queens. He was kind of begging to be found. In some respects, Caro... Uh, hasn't done that. Like I say, he's had two interviews, both interviews. You know, he claims that he's destitute and poor, and all he does is is try to hide from drones and people who are trying to, to uh, attack him. It says that he's not involved in drug trafficking anymore, et cetera, et cetera. You have to wonder if there are elements in the Mexican government that don't want him to be captured and brought to the United States, because you don't know what he's going to say. You know, if any of the allegations of cartel interaction with the Mexican government back in the early 80s, when Rafa and Miguel and Carl were active, you know, if any of those are true, Having Caro in custody in the United States may not be to the benefit of Mexican government officials uh, who still wield some power. So then the question becomes, you know, where where is justice? Um, You know, you've got Caro spent some time in jail, but he's a free man. Fonseca spent time in jail, uh, but he's essentially a free man. It's house arrest and in, in a nice place with his family. I think Agent Kirkendall made it pretty clear that his view is that of the three, the one least likely to have um, been directly involved. I'm not saying not have knowledge of, but have been directly involved in the Camarena abduction planning was Felix Gallardo, and he's the one who's still in jail. And I think conventional wisdom is that Caro Quintero probably had the most direct involvement in the abduction and the planning and the interrogation, and he's the one who's still out and about and operating the cartel in his hometown. Again, I think, you know, we can ask three different questions. We can ask whether justice has been served, whether justice has been delayed, or justice has been denied. And I'll let you make your own conclusions with respect to these three. Um, But I think it's pretty clear that However you look at it, justice has been skewed in some respects, and uh, there there is nothing at all that can be considered just in our sense of the word, in the American sense of the word, by having Caro Quintero still be a free man, a fugitive, but still free and able to conduct... Uh, business going forward. Okay, so that's the first one. The second thing I want to talk about is something we haven't talked about on this on uh, this podcast, and we may get back to it a little bit later. And I'm going to keep this at a very very high level. Okay, so um, we we could talk about this for a couple of episodes, but we're not going to get into the great details. But I want to talk about a couple of defendants who were. Uh, who were charged and convicted in connection with the kidnapping of Agent Camarena, but not the murder. And those two that I want to talk about are Juan Ramon Matabasteros and uh, Rene Martin Verdugo. Both of them were charged, again, with participation in the kidnapping, but not the murder. And the evidence that got them tied into the kidnapping was evidence that they had been at Lope de Vega. The primary evidence of those two being at Lope de Vega came from some testimony from Hector Cervantes Santos, and we all know about his credibility problems and the fact that he's recanted and unrecanted and re-recanted many times. But for our purposes, the thing that really convicted them, the main evidence against them, was certain hair and fiber evidence that again tied them to Lope de Vega? So the hair and fiber evidence really came from an FBI agent by the name of Malone. Okay, he had done um, most of the uh, most of the analysis or was in charge of most of the analysis of the hairs and the fibers, gave most of the testimony. Okay. At some point, Agent Malone's credibility was called into question, not in connection with the Camarena case, but with other cases. And so there was a uh an office of the inspector general report, uh, inspector general of the U S department of justice. And it's titled an assessment of the 1996 department of justice task force review of the FBI laboratory. Um, and so they went and they looked at a number of cases that the, agent, Michael Malone had been involved in, um, and in fact, they say at the very beginning that they conducted a close examination of the cases of Michael Malone, who was only one of 13 examiners in this unit. Importantly, they end up coming up with five different conclusions with respect to Mr. Malone or Agent Malone. And I'd like to just read those real quickly for you. So... Um, His testimony that an individual hair could be determined to be um, unequivocally belong to only one person in the world, based solely on microscopic analysis, had no significant scientific basis at the time Malone testified. One of the scientists conducting the review described Malone's testimony to this Effect in many cases as quote outlandish. Second, Malone's testimony to the statistical probability of a match was inappropriate in hair analysis based solely on microscopic analysis. Three, his conclusions, as described in his reports, had unclear and unsupported bases. Number four, His documentation was inadequate and often indecipherable. And five, his testimony included an analysis that was not documented in his lab reports or bench notes. Okay. So this comes out, this Inspector General report, and uh, as a result of that, Defendants who had, across the country, uh, you know, who had been convicted based on, largely on testimony from Agent Malone, filed for, you know, new trials, acquittals, as the case may be. For our purposes, both Verdugo and Mata made motions for new trials, both of which were granted. And what's interesting is the Justice Department made a decision not to retry them. As a result, uh, Verdugo actually went free, uh, was sent back to or repatriated to Mexico, where he lives today. Um, And Mata, on the other hand, is still in federal prison, and he's there on drug trafficking charges where he had a life sentence without the possibility of parole. That's in relation, remember, we talked a long, t- long time ago about um, the Oxnard and the Arizona drug rings and the bus around those. I will say that Mata continues to believe and assert that he's likely to get house arrest or um, some type of reprieve and sent back to Honduras in the near future, but he remains in prison as of today. Now, I want to talk about the decisions not to retry them. Lots of different ways you can look at this. Lots of different ways. Um, One argument was that they didn't have any other evidence and uh, it would have been hard to to retry them. Another analysis is to say, uh, you know, Verdugo had been in prison for 30-something years. Uh, You know, he kind of served his time. Uh, Mata was still in prison. There really wasn't any value to having another trial. Uh, A third argument could come, could be made, that as we've discussed, there were uh, credibility issues not only with Mr. Malone's testimony, but with the testimony of some other witnesses against both Verdugo and Mata and whether or not uh, they really had credible witnesses that the Department of Justice could have put on the stand, and who could have given enough evidence to support a a, a guilty plea or a guilty verdict against Verdugo and Mata. So lots of diff- lots of different reasons. Again, some of it depends on on your vantage point and who you're talking to. But let's let's go back and 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 ask our question about. Uh, justice, you know, has justice been served? Has it been delayed? You know, I think it's fair to say that to the extent that, uh, you know, Mata was was uh, involved, and, and we've talked about the questions relating to that, and he clearly says that he was never involved, had nothing to do with the uh, the Camarena murder. Uh, you know, Mata's been in, in jail for a very long time, and will remain there for a very long time, uh, you know, unless unless something extraordinary happens and he is sent back to Honduras. You know, you wonder a little bit about Verdugo. Um, I, I think the testimony and, and people might have seen Rene Verdugo used to have a, a website that was controlled by his attorneys. It's not up anymore, but there was lots of materials in there. Uh, There was also an open letter from him to the president of Mexico, and I I think he says that, you know, he was around, might have been, you know, might have been at Lope de Vega, but certainly had nothing to do with the kidnapping, the planning, the conspiracy, the murder, the interrogation, nothing else. And and you wonder, um, you know, was he was he convicted primarily on the hair and fiber and you know testimony and analysis that became questioned? Uh, and if he was, was that a, you know, was, was that justice for, uh, for Verdugo? Uh, you know, uh, other people might say <laughs> whether or not his hair was directly there. He certainly was around and, and, you know, if the if the net gathers more people on the periphery than, you know, or if it gathers people on the periphery as opposed to just the central players, that's okay because, in essence, they were bad people. Mm-hmm. Similarly to the Malone defense, I want to talk about uh, Dr. Alvarez-Machain. Dr. Umberto Alvarez-Machain. Interesting character for for a whole variety of reasons. So, Doctor Machine was a, a gynecologist in Guadalajara who uh, who hung around with the cartel, uh, you know, with the drug traffickers. And I think he did it, uh, you know, because he he liked <laughs> he liked being around them. He liked the money. He liked the lifestyle. He liked the girls, um, and he certainly was somebody who apparently had been around uh to uh to provide medical care during some of the uh, traffickers' parties and i think we talked about this w- way back but remember uh rafael caracintero's definition of a party and my definition of a party are probably widely different they had parties that went on for days uh and there was lots of drink and lots of drugs and so, uh, Doctor Alvarez and some others, other doctors probably were around and, and took care of things. We talked about the the circumstances of his case a little bit, and I want to, um, um, you know, kind of give a highlight of it because we don't need to go into detail again. But as we know, Doctor Alvarez was kidnapped from Mexico. Uh, whether that was uh, at the direction of the DEA. At the direction of Agent uh, Berreas or otherwise, you know, we can, we can figure out. But in any case, uh, he was kidnapped from Mexico, brought to the United States, and um, he was tried in federal court in the Zuno 2 trial. I happen to sit next to Dr. Machine, I called him Dr. Machine back then, so it's hard for me to get around that, but um, Dr. Alvarez. So I sat next to him during most of that trial. When the government rested its case, Dr. Alvarez's counsel, um, with some prodding, uh, good-natured prodding and and, um, support, let me put it that way. Um, made a motion for a judgment of acquittal. Judge Rafiti asked for briefing, conducted a hearing, and eventually uh, granted that motion for judgment of acquittal. Judge Rafiti, and keep in mind, Judge Rafiti was not a soft-on-crime type of judge. Judge Rafiti said that the government's case was based on suspicion and hunches, but no proof. And he also said that the case was whole cloth, the wildest speculation. Okay. So, Mr. or Dr. Alvarez is released, returned to Mexico, and he, um, filed some civil suits in the United States. A couple of cases of his went uh, to the U.S. Supreme Court. Essentially, he w- it was found that the extraterritorial rendition wasn't a violation of his rights, um, or that the rights certain rights didn't apply to him. He also wasn't entitled to damages under the alien stort- tort statute. Sorry. Um... But so he was released, really didn't get any, you know, didn't get big dollars in a civil suit. He currently resides in Guadalajara. Um, We know he was interviewed by Laura Logan when she was at CBS a few years ago. He owns a taco restaurant in Guadalajara and is uh, from, you know, everything I can understand is kind of living out his life. But I want to ask about justice for him. Now keep in mind, I'm not just talking about the trial, but let's start there. This man was picked up off the streets in Mexico, flown to El Paso, and this has to be mostly apocryphal, but basically thrown out of the plane as it touched down and then returned to Mexico. He voluntarily talked. I mean, he, he, if you look at the transcripts, he looks like he's happy as heck to tell his story to Boreas. He was in jail after that. You know, he was in prison while he was waiting trial. And the government doesn't even get to the jury on it? That, to me, is 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 just astounding. What else is astounding to me is i want to go back to the, to the last narc. And how many of you watched the last arc and you saw Manny Madrano, former assistant United States attorney, who prosecuted this case, say with absolute conviction and dramatically that Dr. Alvarez would stab Agent Cameron in the heart and inject him so that he, he could keep him alive longer? When he could not prove it in court, where Judge Rafidi said he had no proof, only hunches. It's absolutely absurd. And for me, and I said I wasn't going to answer the question always, <laughs> but for me, how can that be justice? How can it be justice that you pick somebody up and you can't even get to the jury? And how can it be justice when years after that, you tell stories like they're fact? He tells it like he was there, like he watched a video. I want to go back to Judge graffiti for one second before we move on. There are some nice conspiracy theories out there. That you know, Judge Rafidi was put in pl- put there, uh, you know, in order to to take care of things and handle it in a way that was good for the CIA. There are um, you know different explanations too for his judgment of acquittal, where he could say you know there's been some conjecture that he was so appalled by. The kidnapping of Dr. Alvarez that he bent over backwards to, uh, you know, to find in the doctor's favor on the motion for judgment of acquittal. Having been in the courtroom, I don't buy that. I don't buy it at all. I think when Judge Rafidi said that the government case was built on, quote, suspicion and hunches but no proof, close quote, He was right, he was candid, and he was honest. Okay, we got a a couple more that I want to go through, and then then we're going to tie this together, hopefully. When we talk about justice, I I also want to focus a little bit on uh, Rene Lopez Romero. And we've talked about Lopez a lot. You saw him a lot in The Last Narc. We know that Agent Boreas relies upon him and Jorge Godoy a lot in connection with The Last Narc, in connection with his book, in connection with other things that he's done and said. But Let's talk about justice for a second. What do we know for sure? And we, we talked a few weeks ago about Rene Lopez. So I'm not going to go through everything. But what do we know for sure? Well, we know that he's never been prosecuted for anything that happened in connection with the Camarena case. And we know that he admits over and over and over and over admits That he was involved in the kidnapping of Agent Camarena. That he was in the car that drove Agent Camarena to Lope de Vega and to his death. And yet, never saw an indictment, never saw a courtroom, never looked a jury in the eye, never spent a day in prison for that involvement. We also know that he was involved in some other acts that got him into trouble in the United States, unconnected to uh, the Cameron case. And I want to read a letter to you, and I'm going to put this up on our website. It might take me a day or two, but I I want everybody to be able to see this. And it's there, but you got to search for it. But I'm going to put this front and center, okay? So, January 20th, 1993. Okay. So, about a month after the Zuno 2 case was over, Hector Boreas, as the group supervisor for Operation Landa, sends a letter to William Mitchell was the DA of Riverside County at the time. And he says, and I'm going to read most of this, I may um, truncate just a little bit of it, but he says, as you are aware, Mr. Rene Lopez Romero testified in behalf of the United States government in U.S. versus Rubens Unruise and Dr. Humberto Alvarez-Machine last December 1992. Mr. Lopez, a percipient witness, (laughs) to the kidnap, torture, and murder of Special Agent Enrique Camarena proved to be a crucial witness which resulted in the conviction of defendant Ruben Zuno Arce, brother-in-law of former Mexico President Luisa Chevarria. The United States government will pursue indictments of additional defendants in the future. Mr. Lopez's testimony will be required before federal grand juries scheduled to commence within the central district of california sometime during the month of march 1993 mr lopez and his family are currently under the protection and supervision of the usdea mr lopez relieves, receives i'm sorry mr lopez receives a monthly stipend of $3000 from the united states government mr lopez and his family members will be placed in the marshals Witness Protection Program, once Mr. Lopez concludes testifying before the scheduled grand juries, your assistance regarding Mr. Lopez's current situation will be greatly appreciated. Mr. Lopez has been briefed at length concerning U.S. laws, customs, and mores by agents in my group, and he has assured us that the committed offense will never occur again. Respectfully submitted, Hector G. Boreas. So much to dissect there. So much. But let's start with... <laughs> He's... Agent Boreas is writing to the sitting district attorney of Riverside County. So we should assume that forthrightness should be required at a minimum, Right? Mr. Lopez, a percipient witness to the kidnapping of Agent Camarena. Well, hell yes, he was a percipient witness. He participated in it. Does Agent Breas mention that? No, (laughs) not at all. Uh, Also, ask yourself, why is it that when he talks about the conviction of Ruben Zunorarse, he has to mention that uh, he was the brother-in-law of the former president of Mexico? How in the world does that apply unless you're trying to make this a you know a, a political statement he also talks about you know he's going to get money and then he says you know what we've we've explained to Mr. Lopez you know that there's laws there's customs there's mores in the US that are different than in Mexico and he's given us our assurance that he won't do this again, so please let him off. Because you know who are you going to trust more than a convicted or, or than a kidnapper of the agent that this is about? You, you know, I, I, let me restate state that because that was that came out really bad. You know who are you going to trust more than the guy who? Was involved in the kidnapping of Agent Cameron and then now wants to tell everybody about it so that he and his family can get witness protection and the monthly stipend and asylum in the United States. It's ridiculous. If it's not fraud, it's damn close. It's misleading. And what we can say for sure, if we're talking about Rene Lopez Romero and we're asking ourselves the question, was justice served, justice delayed, or justice denied, I defy anybody to tell me how with respect to Rene Lopez Romero, who's living in Las Vegas now, Sin City, tell me that's not appropriate. I defy anybody to tell me how justice hasn't been denied. Okay, I want to talk real quick about Ruben Zuno Arce um, for uh, um, one simple reason. Okay, as as everybody knows, I've said several times, full disclosure, I worked as part of the defense team for Mr. Zuno. Uh, I worked on his appeals, and I met him on several occasions, many occasions. And I have my own uh, beliefs about his guilt or innocence. But what we do know for sure is two things. One is at the Zuno-1 trial, the primary evidence brought against him was in the testimony of Hector Cervantes Santos. And we know that that testimony was discredited, followed by the recantations from Cervantes. We know that he got a new trial. And at the new trial, the government had a new case, a new theory, new witnesses, and almost entirely, almost entirely, Mr. Zuno's conviction was based on the testimony of Godoy and Lopez, and Boreas admits that in his letter to the, the Riverside County DA. Now, Mr. Madrano, in The Last Narc, says something to the effect of you know, there was, trust me, there was more than enough evidence to convict Mr. Zuno. Bull. And my personal disdain for um, for anybody who would make that type of claim, who, who would make the claims that they did about Dr. Alvarez, is abundantly queer. But let me make this counter. Number one, if, as we've talked about, if Godoy and Lopez have credibility issues, if they weren't lying, or if they, if they were not telling the truth, the government had almost no other evidence. Nothing. Nothing at all. So you put that along with the Brady violations that were clear. Perhaps not sufficient to prevail in an appeal. But absolutely queer. And you have a real question about the validity, the basis for the justice behind Mr. Zuno's conviction. And Mr. Zuno died in federal prison in 2012. To this day, I believe he was innocent of the allegations against him with respect to the Camarena case. One of the questions that's been asked of me sometimes is, okay, if Godoy and Lopez are found to have been less than credible, why doesn't the government come out and say that? And I think the answer is clear. What is the U.S. government to do now? Hold a press conference that says, you know what, we've investigated. We've looked at everything. We don't believe Godoy and Lopez were factual and forthright in their testimony. Perhaps even with respect to things they said in the last NARC, but with respect to the testimony. And, geez, we really feel bad about that. Um, We'd like to apologize to Mr. Zuno Arce, but unfortunately he's dead. And we really feel bad about the the fact that we trusted Mr. Lopez Romero so much that notwithstanding his role in the kidnapping, we let him live in the United States. We paid him money and uh, gave him protection and asylum. It's just not going to happen. I don't think there's any reason why... uh, Certain elements in the Justice Department want that conclusion to be released or to be reached. All right. How do we tie this all together? One of the things I talked about in connection with starting this podcast, in connection with my book, "Someone Had to Die," that does a deep dive into all of these claims and the facts around them. One of the reasons that I've got another project in the works that's going to expose more things with respect to the camera in a case and the people who were involved, is that I wanted to see justice done. Not just for the client that I helped represent, Mr. Zuno, but justice in a larger sense. Uh, You know, justice in the sense of what's right and wrong. But as we've walked through, uh, you know, the facts, as we've talked about the case more and more, as I've talked to more witnesses. As we walked through this today, you have to ask yourself, where's the justice for Agent Camarena? Is justice in the fact that a couple of people were convicted, who may have been involved in the case, may not have had much involvement? Uh, Is it justice that Fonseca... And Felix Gallardo and Caro Quintero were uh, were jailed in Mexico? Or has justice been delayed? Is justice delayed because Caro Quintero still walks as a free man? A fugitive, but a free man. Is justice for agent camarena delayed because rene lopez romero one of his abductors is living a free as a free man in las vegas having been granted asylum by the, the united states is justice for agent camarena Is that justice delayed or even denied if certain people were abducted from Mexico? Is that justice delayed when we know that that case couldn't even go to the jury? And is justice further delayed or even denied by the fact that Mr. Zuno might have been convicted based on the testimony of liars? And yet he died in a federal penitentiary in the United States away from his family. I think it's important that there be justice for Agent Camarena. And I want to pick my words and choose my words carefully because I think that's also what Agent Boreas says. And I think our definitions are dramatically different. And I think our process... Of reaching justice is entirely different. But I think until we know who truly, who truly was involved in the abduction, the interrogation, and the ultimate murder of Agent Camarena, and that those people see justice served the justice for Agent Camarena will continue to be delayed, if not denied. And it's also incredibly important that justice for Agent Camarena be based on facts, be based on evidence, be supported by contemporaneous documents, and simply make sense. It's not enough to say, I want there to be justice for Agent Camera," and therefore trust me about X, Y, and Z. Trust me about Godoy. Trust me, Manny Madrana would say. Trust me. Dr. Alvarez, he stabbed him in the heart. Though I didn't prove that at, at trial. Justice is important. Justice is coming. But there is no justice if it's not supported and if it's not accurate. All right. That um, that was a little bit more of a, a soapbox than I intended to get on. And I apologize for that. But hopefully it makes sense. Uh, a couple things, folks, before I let you go. Uh, number one, if you like this podcast, please tell other people about it. Hey, we'd love to grow it. Number two, um, if you have comments, thoughts, questions, whatever, please put them on the website. And then number three, remember... Um, my book, Someone Had to Die. Uh, whether you like it or not, there's a lot of good information in there. And uh, I think anybody who's interested in the case will find facts and details in there they might not have been aware of or likely were not aware of. So that's our podcast for today. This may be the longest one we've done. We will come back next week and i uh, got to be honest with you. I have no idea which direction we're going to go, but I will do my best to make it exciting and interesting, and I wish you all a good week.